1: To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. This is Kurt Withhelm with Katie Vernoy, and this is the podcast that deals with all of the things that therapists face that we weren't necessarily taught in grad school, the way that our lives play out. And in the beginning, somebody came up with politics. And other people had some thoughts against that, and then people had thoughts against that. So (laughs) fast forward a couple of thousand cycles, and here we are today, and that plays out into our therapy rooms and the way that people go about approaching social justice and all sorts of the other topics that we approach here. And here to talk about political reactionism is Dr. Teresa Capellos, and she is so gracious to share her time and all of her wonderful experience in looking at the ways that people react to politics. So thank you so much for joining
2: us. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to be here. I am so excited to have
0: you here. It's I miss you so much. I wish we could be in person. But what we do on our show is we typically ask people, who are you and what are you putting out to the world?
2: Okay. Well, I am a political psychologist. I was trained in the States. Political psychology is a, is a blend between politics and psychology and it, it tries to understand how political decision making is informed by psychological processes. Then at the same time it also tries to see how psychological processes are affected by political decisions. So the loop closes as we go around and we're looking at the intersection, the interaction between psychological processes and political decisions at at both ends of the causal arrow. I'm also director of the Institute for Conflict, Cooperation and Security at the University of Birmingham, where I'm I'm, I'm academically based and I direct an MSc in uh, political psychology of international relations when we deal with political psychology issues about international conflict. And very, very recently, I was announced to be the president-elect of the Institute of the International Society of Political Psychology. That's the big organization that represents political psychologists around the world. We we call this ISPP. Oh,
0: congratulations. Yeah. Oh,
2: thank you. It's very yeah.
0: exciting.
1: And I have to imagine the way that you're describing political psychology, that your group of people does not get invited to a lot of parties with outside other professions, do you? <laughs>
2: No, we do actually. We get invited to a lot of parties. And then the moment you're in, people think, oh, you're a psychologist. Let me open up to you and tell you what's wrong with me. (laughs) And and then they're waiting for a diagnosis or some kind of word of comfort. And we were like, "Mm," you know. So
1: you have written a lot about political reactionism. Can you give us, you know, basically your entire career's worth of writings down here into a couple of bullet points about what is political reactionism?
2: It's a very interesting question. So political reactionism is something that I started investigating a few years ago, not, not 20 years that I've been in this profession. But to be able to understand it and to approach it, I think all the knowledge that I've gained through these years of study came in very, really handy. Because from a political psychology perspective, you need to understand what are the cognitive, what are the affective, and also motivational determinants of this particular orientation. And it's impossible to do that if you only focus on one of these three, because it's a blend. So we approach it, we have defined it, and we have measured it, and we approach it also as a blended orientation that has a motivational component. And that motivational component is to basically retain existing beliefs about the now, but also return back to something that used to provide comfort. It has a cognitive component that is structured around anti-preferences. We call these preferences that are not actively seeking something. So they are not comprised by a process of evaluating information and going for something the way you would in any pro argument but they rather move backwards so they are anti-preferences they go against they're easily opposed rather than support it's more comfortable for the reactionary to oppose rather than seek uh, a particular something to to support and then then they have a, a very strong effective component and perhaps that sits at the core of the reactionary orientation which we have identified and also measured and we're running several studies the past few years as reactionary, uh, resentful affect. So it's, it's a deep resentment, which is a complicated emotional state. It's not the anger or the fear that very often we, we talk about in our academic studies of emotionality in, in politics, but it's, it's more complex, it's deeper, and it has particular origins that rest at the individual level that involve in envy and shame. And these are emotions that quantitative political psychologists like me are not usually engaging with. So for us, it's a breakthrough to push the boundaries of what we know about emotions in politics and and ask some questions that go beyond the standard analysis of angry voters do this, afraid voters do that, and creating a divide between them. So reactionism and resentful affect blends those and tries to see how this cocktail of emotional reactions affects the way people orient themselves.
0: To me, what I'm hearing, and, and I please let me know if I'm oversimplifying it, is I'm very resentful about what is happening now. I want what's happening now to stop. And I believe that in the past, there was some better time and we need to get back to that.
2: Yeah, if, if you were able to express your position as a reactionary, that's probably what you would say. You might not be forthright, admitting to your negative reaction, the emotional reaction, because mm-hmm. it it requires a level of uh, being comfortable with discussing emotions that some people who are angry uh, don't have, and yeah. resentment has anger in it. But yeah, in a, in a quiet in a in a quiet state of mind, uh, you you would say that. Yeah.
1: So I want to get into some of these psychological factors that you were talking about here a little bit more, and what makes. Somebody, and this is both in in recognizing this within ourselves as therapists, but also, I mean, as the political seasons heat up, at least here in America, and literally every conversation, everywhere, all the time, <laughs> seeming to be about <laughs> politics right now, is yeah. what what is it about people that makes them into this anti-preference, as opposed to necessarily seeking out the the pro-preference, I guess, if I'm trying to catch myself up into the language that you're using here, of trying to gain rather than remove bad?
2: Yeah, that, that's a very, very good question. We've been trying to isolate it. You know how we do in psychological studies where you take a, st- a part, a particular section of the mechanism and you try to analyze it and, and, and explore it more carefully. And you can take it back at different stages. One of the the closest stage that we can easily identify with our measures through surveys is that these people are negatively oriented towards uncertainty. They are not comfortable with uncertainty. and Uncertainty gives them anxiety. And then when you blend this anxiety with a, a feeling of indignation and the feeling that somebody has done some injustice to them, and that injustice could be very very well appropriate or let's say real it's not imagined in many instances these people suffer a very difficult hard condition in their everyday lives and so if they internalize it as an injustice that was done to them then uh, in order to vent it out in order to find a way to release it out the reactionary orientation operates under this resentful affect, which very, very often we see it as a coping mechanism. It's a way for the individual to allow itself to operate in a in a in a societal context um, where they feel that they don't have to stay with this shame or envy of what the other has and they don't have. So the process of turning and digesting these emotions but not letting them stop you from operating in the political context creates this resentment or resentiment, it's a more complicated psychoanalytic term that talks Mm -hmm. about this repression of the negative emotionality and and the individual at the end of it comes out as um, the good one. And at the same time, there is transvaluation. So I'm sure your audience understands these terms that we have to explain much, much more to political psychologists (laughs) that don't use them very often. Um, But the transvaluation basically is the idea that whatever you want, you change the value of the things that you wanted into something you no longer need, it's beyond it's beneath you, you are way better than that. And you equally change your own value, right? Uh, So you transmute the negative emotions, you transvaluate the desires, and your own value goes up again. So these concepts of resentment have been explored in Salarian accounts and in Nietzsche, Centuries ago, but what, is, what, is, what it allows us to understand is that reactionism is not a pathology and it doesn't, it cannot be understood outside the political context. It's something that happens because of the need of individuals to manage their own feelings and their own experiences in a political context that frustrates them deeply and because it's not healthy for them to stay with that frustration. They find a way to vent it through this resentment, which goes really, really well with this desire to turn things back. Why? Because populist narratives give that kind of release. As part of the resentiment is the idea that you you find you find a, a release mechanism, you find the other that is at fault. And when the political environment provides you, feeds you with, with the targets of your rage or, right, your resentment, then you can easily attach those targets and start seeking solutions that turn things back rather than forward. Now, why is that? The second component of all this is this aversion to uncertainty. The uncertainty for the reactionaries generate significant anxiety. So these are not individuals that feel very comfortable with an uncertain future. That's mm-hmm. why they would very much like the comfort of a certain past. Now, this past could be imagined. Very, very often, if you look at the narratives of reactionary politicians or parties, what you what you find is that the past that they're promising is not a past that was actually there. And you also don't find a very consistent past. The past can blend in. It's, it's almost like a memory of the past that's blending in different centuries that sometimes existed and sometimes didn't. Right. So,
0: very idealized.
2: It's sometimes, yeah, it's idealized and sometimes it's just fictional. It was never there.
1: Thrizer is a payment platform designed for out of network therapy. As a therapist, you would use Thrizer to charge clients for sessions and collect your full rate upfront. From the client's perspective, Thrizer links to their health plan, so insurance claims are automatically submitted for them upon every charge. From there, Thrizer manages the claims end-to-end so that your clients don't have to worry about manually submitting super bills or getting on calls with insurance. The best part? Thrizer allows clients to only pay their co-insurance portion for sessions, while Thrizer covers the rest of your fee and waits for reimbursement on their behalf.
0: They also offer you an instant benefits calculator for free, allowing you to provide upfront transparency to prospective clients on their out-of-network coverage. Therapists only pay a standard 3% credit card processing fee per session with no additional fees. Visit join.thryser.com forward slash therapist to get started and use our promo code Modern Therapists to receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions.
1: The way that I'm listening to you makes this, and this may just be you know, my own political bias. But the way that I'm listening to you is this seems like it pushes towards a very prescriptive type of political ideology that people seek out, almost deterministic as far as to remove any of that anxiety, which I think traditionally, at least in the sociological studies that I studied as part of my minor undergraduate, seems to be associated with political right. But in reading some of your articles, you say that this is something that happens on political left as well.
2: Yeah, we, we find that it's neither a left nor a right privilege or property, uh, for better or worse. What's interesting with this, and you mentioned the word um, ideology, so perhaps I should start from that, because we find reactionism is not an ideology, has nothing to do with the ideological ideological thinking. So in fact, ideologies offer you a schema which you can use to make sense of the world, right? They tell you what's right and wrong, they tell you which way things should be going, or and which way things are going. And they create these mental representations of how we should see politics they create expectations the ideological expectations that's why we we can fit them on the left and on the right so the traditional ideological way of or the ideologues, as we call them in political psychology, are people who interpret the world with clear ideological narratives, and they can identify where these narratives are on the left and right scale, and they react to these. So they live their political life on, on, uh, in accordance with these narratives. These are the ideologues. And we have the people that we identify as naïve. Politically naive, they are the ones who don't really comprehend ideology that much, and they navigate the political world during other, uh, using other other measures, maybe political personality or maybe preferences on issues or their own pocketbook. Right. So let's keep that idea of what ideology means, and now let's try to blend that in with reactionism. What we find is that reactionaries are not attached to a particular ideological space and their thinking is not structured in ideological terms. Ideologies don't really drive the way they make decisions. Other things drive the way they make decisions, mm-hmm. their feelings or their beliefs about where we're going and how good the the future is going to be or how dangerous the future is going to be and how good the past is. So these are the things that explain their decisions in our empirical models rather than looking at ideology. And we also find that when you try to map them where where they fit in the ideological space, when we ask them, are you left and right? Some of them will say they're on the left and some of them will say they're on the right. And in in fact, there are political theory work, not ones that I've engaged in directly, but we're reading it that that talks about reactionaries on the left as well. So it's not a property of the right. And, And that explains why these reactionaries can have appetite for populist parties, both on the left and on the right of the political spectrum. It's not just the far right voters, that are reactionary voters here. And it's also not only the ones that uh, vote for populist parties. It's a little broader. It's it's based on preference rather than desire, rather than choice. Because you can be reactionary and can be brewing there, but if the political environment doesn't offer a political, a party choice for you, then you can vote for a different party. Or very, very often you don't vote, you abstain. You are the one who is disengaging. But the reactionary orientation is there. and it's. It's waiting for the right moment.
0: When you're describing reactionary, I feel like there's some danger or negative connotations to that, that there is problematic behaviors that may rise from that. There's certainly I have my own opinion about it, but what are the dangers of having either an individual become very reactionary based on their, you know, kind of the psychological factors you've described or groups of people becoming very reactionary. Like what are the what are the risks?
2: Okay, so let's start from the very, very evident ones that affect the way we live with each other, is that when reactionary orientations tag alongside very resentful populist messages, then the overall behavior of these individuals is not pro social. And it can lead to more intolerance, more discrimination, and it can lead to patterns of behavior in the political arena that are not benefiting the common good, whatever that common good can be defined to be. Mm -hmm. So that that is problematic. There's a second problem. I mean, you you could start seeing how this orientation can, can create environments that We are all experiencing these days. The second orientation is this disengagement or let's say the lack of appetite for political adventure or the new or the unexplored and the discomfort that comes with that and the desire to turn things back, which as as it is experienced by by the individual, it doesn't allow it to see progress as new solutions to existing problems. And there's an issue there. Because history never turns back. Every society experiences some things of the past, but in a new way, Yeah, in, in with new scientific uh, knowledge and, and new societal structures, new experiences, technological engagement and all that. So looking at the solutions of the past, or let's say solutions that worked in the past, is by definition inadequate in addressing the problems of the present. So that creates a, creates a mismatch between the actual needs and and anxieties that these individuals have that could be very pragmatic and very real that need to be met with forward-looking measures and their desire to go to back to what was tested and tried but not necessarily tested and tried in the environment in which they're experiencing the problems they're experiencing so that doesn't lead to any policy solutions that will adequately address their own problems so we hold that the other issue is their way of thinking about things. Now, this is a little bit of a, it's it's an interesting element that we're exploring now, but I think it's worth a lot and, and it's good engaging with it. What we are starting to get some evidence towards is that the engagement of reactionaries with scientific inquiry is particularly compromised, that their way of engaging with the testing part of science, right, the principles of science that require testing rather than proving is mm-hmm. lopsided. Lapsi- and this is not a new idea. Back in 1923, a professor called Wolf from Ohio State, I think, wrote a book on radicalism and reactionism and what he was trying to identify is how these people approach learning. And he said, look, we need to pay attention to this because the way they engage with scientific evidence, the way they evaluate what's what's there for them, but also the way they seek new information is fundamentally different. The reactionaries seek to prove. And when you seek to prove, you go after information that is very consistent to what you already know. Confirmation biases take yeah. Uh, Over, And you don't seek new information. And when you come across new information, you don't want to believe it. So and you also don't like anybody who tells you otherwise. Right. So this is a problem because that doesn't move knowledge forward. We all know the scientific paradigm involves testing hypothesis testing that requires you to disprove what you believe, right? Your hypothesis yes. rather than try to prove it. So it's the opposite way of engaging with science. is seeking what's new, is trying what's out there, is collecting as much information as possible, putting your theory to hard test, not finding evidence that proves your theory. If you take that into account, if this is indeed the way reactionaries are engaging with science, and this is what we're working on uh, these days, This has significant implications for understanding the anti-expert sentiment that we see these days. right because they are fundamentally uncomfortable with the idea of testing so when experts come out apparently even now in the covid crisis right and they say well there's this scientific evidence and there's this scientific evidence but we don't know for sure and let's explore this further and there's this scientific evidence this uncertainty that comes with scientific inquiry and it usually goes hand in hand because every step of scientific inquiry comes with challenging a new uncertainty that many people are comfortable with that and many others are not. Reactionaries yes. are not comfortable with. They want the answers straight, they want them quickly, and they want the answers certain.
1: Not only does Therapy Notes combine billing, scheduling, notes, secure messaging, group telehealth, and more into one streamlined platform, they're also always adding new features and forms to their library. So, no matter your specialty, Therapy Notes has you covered.
0: Learn more at therapynotes.com and use promo code MODERN for two months free.
1: And I have to imagine that it doesn't help that even when those experts are engaged in their own reactionism and confirmation biases, and you bring up the COVID situation where there's medical doctors who are espousing statistics that don't support the statistics that are being given out by the World Health Organization, CDC, those kinds of places that then give people this place of anxiety release of here's somebody in this expert position that backs up what I'm already thinking about the situation, or to the even further extents of conspiracy theories of, you know, things like 5G causing the spread of coronavirus. So am I hearing you correctly and interpreting it this way?
2: Yeah, well, there is the politicization of science, of course, there will be scientists that come out and have a particular political perspective, and and they can go out there and put it forward. What happens afterwards, though, is that process of scientific testing that puts every scientific proposition into an inquiry process, right? So even the the best ideas will be tested, the worst ideas will be tested, and the scientific evidence at the end of it will tell us what holds and what doesn't. The The reactionary individual gets really tired, gets even more resentful and, and anxious through this process because they are impatient. They want to be told what it is, right? So if somebody, if an expert, uh, as you say, comes out and instead of engaging with the scientific inquiry methodology and approach that we are all comfortable with, starts offering quick and fast solutions or authoritative knowledge about something that has not been tested has not been dead uh, has not passed the test of multiple iterations of testing or you know validation then the problem becomes that these people yeah get hope they need it so in a way that is good, For them, but they might be going down their own path with really significant implications about their own health. This whole debate about not drinking fluorine, some people were laughing, thinking, yeah, we're seriously going to have this debate. But it was important to have this conversation because there were people who were believing the certain experts or (laughs) Politicians that told them it's okay to go ahead and do that. I I
1: do like that you're separating out politicians from experts here.
2: Yes, I think that's a (laughs) a very important distinction. (laughs) They are are (laughs) definitely distinct groups of people. And we have experts that have been serving in places in government that can advise political leaders, and you can see all kinds of permutations of how that goes. In some instances, they're being heard of. Uh, In some other instances, politics trump science, and we see this all the time. There are multiple scientists, not only uh, epidemiologists, for instance. So there's economists and there are political scientists giving advice. So these advice can conflict. So there are cost and benefit considerations. The politics does that. The science does the work to tell us what is the evidence we have, and somebody has to weigh it. Right, to find the, the policy pathway that we want to follow. We see this from medical science, cancer research. We, we have the evidence on the number of deaths. We know the benefits of screening, but we also know how many countries don't adopt that screening because it's costly, right? So this cost-benefit analysis of how many people can we afford to lose from cancer if we introduce screening at 40 or at 50 or at 60 is the game that politicians, or the game, the decision that politicians play respectfully? So because they, somebody has to make that decision, um, it's not easy.
0: No, and I wouldn't want to be making those decisions. And I'm just thinking about what you're describing because the something has happened. I, I'm indignant that something has happened. I have been, I've been harmed in some way. I am resentful about that, and now I need to go out and decide how I'm going to to you know, take on the world. And I can imagine, you know, and I just think about kind of the uncertainty and that all of us are facing around such a huge lack of data, lack of, you know, kind of knowledge and, and the need for this scientific process to happen pretty rapidly for us as a society to kind of get back into anything resembling what was normal life before. And so to me, what I'm also hearing is that, that, political reactionism can come from a place of fear and exhaustion and and needing to be out of this state of uncertainty and and i imagine that you know there's there's a point at which all of us hit some political reactionism because of how hard it is to face these all the uncertainties that we are in the in the covid era so to speak and so i guess the the question is do people do they know that they are they've moved into this place of political reactionism. Do they have a sense of this lack of patience for the political, you know, the scientific process, the, 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 fear of an uncertain future, the, the, the desire to go back to a simpler time, this, this stag- you know, this push towards stagnation and simplicity. <laughs> like, do people have a sense that they are becoming
2: politically reactionary? That's a brilliant question. And and I think it allows us to think of it that way. Most people, most everyday people, my parents included, don't read political psychology articles. And reactionism is a label we have used. We have been using it for 100 years since uh, Wolf and, and even uh, probably a little bit before that to, want to, to, to give a name, to give a label to this particular orientation. So people might not know their reactionaries and it wouldn't hurt them. Um, I don't know it in that sense, but they probably feel it because very often Mm -hmm. we make sense of the way we exist in the political space, right? Now, and how we process our emotions, how we understand the way we feel, that that opens up a whole other fantastic conversation we can have on affective competences. Do people have the skill sets to recognize how they feel, express how they feel, uh, regulate how they feel, and at the same time do it for other people, to mirror the the emotions uh, of others and the feelings of others. As a society, uh, we are very, very naive to affective competence. We don't train our children at school. We train them in math. We train them uh, on, on reading, and my kids are of young age, so I know how painful it is to structure the little young brain to do math and to do language training, but they pick it up painfully or slowly. But we don't train anybody on affective competences, on building skill sets that help you understand how you feel, how do you manage those emotions, how do you express them constructively, when you should not express them, and also how, how do you understand where the other is at the same time. Now, if you put this in context in the political environment we all experience, you understand how little people know about what it means that they feel this way and also what can they do when they feel this way in a way we're very because we're so naive to to why we feel the way we feel we do two things we label things quickly um, yes. and labeling things there's this very fantastic work in psychology and political sociology called emotionology that is how do we label the emotions that we experience at a particular point in time right are we comfortable in seeing what we feel and calling it one thing in a particular era, sociopolitical era, and how the same emotional reaction, we call it something else, and perhaps we don't consider it socially acceptable in a, in a different time. So all of that helps us understand mm-hmm. how people make sense of this in the particular time that we live in, and whether they do. So if, because the political debate is so centered around anger and fear, if the people who experience resentment might tell you I'm angry. In a different point in time, the same people might, with exactly the same needs, the same frustrations, the same orientation towards politics might tell you I'm, I'm sad. Or they might tell you I'm ashamed or I'm envious or I'm uh, sad, like afraid or anxious. So the label changes because you have a blend of the emotional reactions under this resentful core that sometimes is recognized as something that comes to the surface, some other times is buried. But the theory that we have on resentiment is that all this process is basically unconscious, that people go through this process of transmuting and, and transvaluating and managing their very painful emotional state that usually comes from that feeling of, of, of shame or envy, depending on which uh, approach you take, or maybe both, right? And, and, and in that process, they, they, they change it and they experience it into something else. And it's difficult to tease that apart empirically as well it's very very difficult because you're not going to sit there and psychoanalyze and regress people to try to understand why and very often because of uh, desirability concerns that these people might rightfully have they're not going to answer these questions in public opinion surveys so you know we are a little bit blindfolded we can get through interviews focus groups more qualitative data you can get to the bottom of this some experimental work but not very much but But it's an interesting puzzle that we're trying to understand. Also with with a particular, let's say, normative ideal in mind to provide relief, to allow these people to vent out these negative emotions in a more constructive way, in a way that doesn't hurt them in the long run. Because resentment, when it is repressed, might provide some temporary relief, but at the end, the individual feels not knows but feels that deep inside the problem is not really solved it's something that eats you away slowly because you haven't really addressed the core the fundamental beginning of that problem now for more political psychologists this sounds will make them very uncomfortable because we don't use psychoanalysis in our
1: world (laughs) i was gonna ask you know What can mental health workers do to address this idea of political reactionism? And what I'm understanding from you is do your job.
2: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But you you have been doing your job because I think a lot of people come with these anxieties. Of course, they don't have a label. The labels don't matter. We don't need to start saying to people, I think you have a reactionary orientation. That won't help what will help is, is but it, try-
1: it, it'll just, it, it just gives that opportunity to be like, no, I don't. And then you, you as the therapist can be like, see, you're doing it right now. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but they, yeah. we're laughing. Gaslighting our
0: clients. <laughs> yeah. There, there,
2: there is an issue because people, there, there is a normative, there's usually a normative response to the label of reactionism. People don't like it. People think no. you are accusing them and you're telling them there's something bad. Whereas the way we are using it in our research is, is, is a very technical term to to help us understand this very complex experience that we also understand it's painful for the individual deeply, although they might not recognize it. If you ask them, they tell you, no, I'm fine. You know, this is, I'm not the problem, they are. And so they are meaning whoever is at fault. The, the target of yeah. Their anger. Yeah, and, and that target changing changes depending on the political narrative that they are attached to. And very often as the political narratives crumble, uh, and, and change, these people find that they're accusing a different target, and they mm. manage to consolidate that as as perfectly uh, reasonable, because there is no ideological orientation behind it. There is no right and wrong uh, driven by ideologies that would lock them in a place that do, would not allow them to negotiate, moving far away from what they've said before. That's also why we're saying that it's not ideological. But going back to your question of what um, mental health Um, the mental health community can do is basically provide support to the fundamental needs and and pains of these individuals and help them recognize it, allow them slowly to work through these emotions, give them tools to build their effective competencies. Because the sooner they, all of us, not they, all of us, the sooner all of us realize where our feelings, our negative feelings come from, the sooner we'll be able to find solutions to to settle them down for ourselves without looking for somebody else uh, to do it for us. And Katie, you said something before about don't aren't we all reactionary at some point in time? Yes, we are. Every time we get cornered, every time we get anxious about not having opportunities, every time we get pressurized and unable to explore the future. So when uncertainty does not become Let's call it um effectively neutral, like the I don't know and, mm-hmm. and I'm okay with learning or even positive, the uncertainty that gives us trust. Trust has yeah. a positive uncertainty behind it. So but every time we don't have that, every time we we have this negative uncertainty that eats us away, and negative uncertainty as a parenthesis is usually the way we see uncertainty, right Reactionaries yes. definitely see uncertainty as negative. I've talked to a few people. Uh, the score high on the reactionary scale and you try to explain to them that uncertainty can be positive and it's a concept that is foreign to them they just cannot comprehend it because naturally they experience uncertainty as a negative thing so if we can allow the space to, to 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 create that learning yeah um that that uncertainty can be okay let's try to work with that slowly we can address deeper more fundamental issues that involve envy, that involve shame, that involve how the individual feels about themselves. Um, and if we strengthen that, then I think we can eliminate the negative emotions that come out of it, that resentment, that requires the process of transvaluation, that that, that is the, the, the affective content of reactionary orientation. On one end, but emotions are not enough. So what else can we do? We can continue to train people because remember, as I said before, reactionism has a a cognitive component and Mm -hmm. that cognitive component involves our way of thinking, how we make sense of the world. And we do this with our university students. And, and you can see it at the beginning when they enter the university and how they get really psyched and enthusiastic about our research project and they want to prove they're right. So they wow. go and they write this paper where <laughs> they collect this information to tell you, look, I found all this evidence that proves I'm right. And then you have to disappoint them and unpick that. <laughs> Yeah, and I'll pick them, undo them, unstructure this enthusiasm, try to keep it there alive, but lead them through the process of scientific inquiry where you say, look, no, we're not proving, we're testing, let's let's put this to the test. So uh, through education, with a proper, um, responsible engagement with scientific inquiry, with accepting testing rather than proving, I think the cognitive dimension of reactionism will also slowly Soften, right? loosen up. And as things loosen up, there is a space there to start building more comfortable citizens that are looking for evidence to try new things, to test things, rather than evidence that confirms what they think uh, they already know. There is so much here. <laughs> I, know. I have like so many more questions. It's a bottomless about- pit.
1: I would love to talk about this for many, many episodes, but unfortunately we are running out of our time for today. So where can people find out more about you and all of the wonderful work that you're doing?
2: Well, right now we're all at home. um, When when things uh, resume to some kind of new normality, because it's never going to be, nothing is ever the same, everything's always different. I am based at the University of Birmingham at the Department of Political uh, Science and uh, at the Institute for Conflict, Cooperation and Security. So if you Google Institute for Conflict, Cooperation and Security, University of Birmingham, Or if you Google my name, uh, there aren't many Teresa Capellos out there. So uh, you'll find me.
0: (laughs) And we'll put those links in the show notes.
1: And you can find those show notes at mtsgpodcast.com. And while you're over there, check out all of the wonderful projects that Katie and I are working on. And as we go through our political season here in America. I'm sure that we'll have lots of stuff going on on our blog posts and <laughs> here on the podcast as well as in our Facebook group, the Modern Therapist Group. And would love all of your insights and reactions in all of those various forms. But until next time, I'm Kurt Widhelm with Katie Vernoy and Dr. Teresa Cabellos. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes. Remember to check out Thrizer. They are passionate about making out-of-network therapy work for everyone. Clients save upfront on therapy while therapists earn their full rate. Get started in minutes on join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist and use the promo code modern therapists and receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions.
0: Thanks so much to our partner, Therapy Notes, the highest rated practice management solution for behavioral health. Don't forget, using promo code modern gets you two free months.